a boy, his hunting dog, sharecropping, and what does any of this have to do with the Bible? This is the Bible Reset Podcast brought to you by the Institute for Bible Reading. Welcome to the show. I'm Alex Goodwin here with Paul Kemnitty and Glenn Powell. We've just finished going through a series on the major literary genres inside the Bible. So today we're going to switch gears a little bit and take a look at some of the literature outside of the Bible, but about the Bible. We're going to take a look today at the children's book Sounder, which models, we think, a tremendous way for the stories in the Bible to reverberate in our lives today. The technical word that we'll be looking at is recapitulation, which we'll say a little bit more about in, in a few minutes. So the format for this episode will be a little bit different than usual. First, we're going to go ahead and summarize the story of the book so that even if you haven't read Sounder, you'll understand kind of how it all works. And then we'll quote a few samples from the book's references to the stories of the Bible, noting where and how they fit into the overall narrative of the, of the book. And slight caveat here, the, the book is written kind of in a, a dialect of uh, black sharecroppers. So Obviously, we're three white guys, so we're going to attempt to not butcher the the dialect a little bit, but uh, that'll just be an element of the conversation today. So after that, we're going to finally step back and explore the whole concept of recapitulation and how it gives us kind of a healthier, we think, more authentic alternative to the usual attempts at applying the Bible. There's a way to let the Bible stories speak to us today, but it's more about repeating narrative patterns than about just finding some golden nugget of a key principle or a moral of the story. Yeah, thank you, Alex. And uh, Glenn, thank you for introducing me uh, to, yeah. to Sounder. I, it's, it's kind of a modern classic, isn't it? It really and, is. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I've gone through, you know, my, my whole childhood and adult life, you know, with, without having read it. And, you know, it, it may be that I kind of unconsciously avoid stories about dogs. Um, I had a, <laughs> a paper route as a young, young boy uh, yeah. and I had many terrifying experiences <laughs> with dogs. And so right, right. I've, I've never been a dog lover and, you know, Maybe someday I'll even read The Call of the Wild now that I've made it through Sounder. But, you know, I found it in the children's uh, section of the library, but like a handful of other children's classics, uh, you know, The Wizard of Oz, and Tom Sawyer, you know, A Wrinkle in Time. These are books that appeal to adults as well. Um, it was written by, by William Armstrong, released in 1969. It's won multiple awards, including uh, the Newbery award and and it's a story that centers on a, a poor sharecropping black family in the the post civil war south and it it's fantastic there's amazing insights into the uh the hard scrabble lives of sharecropping families uh, their lives were were brutally hard um the landowners you know put their their dwelling places far apart so that they couldn't come together. And this family, um, you know, is in survival mode. They eat mostly hard biscuits and corn mush. And there's, there's kind of an unusual characteristic in Armstrong's writing style. The characters are never named. They're simply identified by their place in the family. By the end of the book, you know them. And the one exception of course, is their, um, uh, 
raccoon and possum hunting dog named Sounder. And uh, he's a central character in, in his own right. And so early in the story, um, the older boy, who's a central figure, he wakes up and he smells boiling ham, which is something that they normally only experience um, at, at Christmas time. And there's no explanation for how the family got the ham. And there's there's you know, kind of an uneasy sense that something is amiss. And sure enough, three days later, three uh, badge toting white men come to the cabin at night and they accuse the boy's father of thieving um, a neighboring smokehouse. Uh, they chain him. They roughly dump him into the back of their wagon and they haul him away. And just when it seems you know, like things couldn't be worse, Sounder, ever loyal to you know, his master, gets riled up and begins to chase the wagon down the road. And one of the men spins around and levels him with a shotgun blast. And, you know, he falls in the dusty road. And, you know, the boy thinks he's dead. The whole side of his head and his shoulder are blown away. He's missing an ear and an eye. And the, the boy is, of course, just undone. He thinks maybe his father is dead, too. But it turns out the sounder wasn't dead. And he, he drags himself under the porch, under the house, way in the back. Uh, the boy's mother explains to him that when animals die, they like to die alone. Uh, but later, he he crawls under the house to get Sounder's body and bury him, and he discovers that he's gone. And so um, there's some real shocking thing, things in this book, um, uh, especially for a children's book. And, you know, Sounder, the, uh, the hunting dog extraordinaire, um, the book is actually, you know, named for him. And so we think this is going to be like a Lassie story. We're expecting Sounder to rescue people from burning houses and ferocious wolves. And instead, early on in the story, he's, you know, hideously maimed by a shotgun blast. So mm. it's a terrific story and has yeah. a terrific, terrific, although shocking beginning. Right, right. It's hard right away. And I think it's interesting that a kid's story kind of has this depiction of the difficult and the challenge even the tragedy of life. Um, mm. But I think it's like someone said about the best um, children's books. Um, it's not that they tell kids that monsters and dragons exist. Um, it's that they tell them they can be defeated. And mm. so children's, the best children's literature, I think doesn't avoid the hard things of life, but it provides new visions of hope and ways of getting through things. And that's definitely what Sounder does. Okay, so now the family doesn't know if Sounder's alive or dead, right? He's just gone. So the boy searches, but he can't find him anywhere. He goes to their favorite hunting spots. He's not there. Weeks go by, and then finally Christmas arrives. The boy's mother makes a layered cake for her husband, who's in jail, waiting his court date. And he tells the boy to bring it to his father in jail. So the boy gets nervous going through town. I mean, they live out in out in the fields and he's always nervous when they have to go to the white town and he's treated badly by the jail guards spoken to roughly one of the guards says there might be a knife or a weapon in there so he breaks the whole cake into pieces kind of throws it back in the box and gives it to the boy so this whole thing is not really going well uh, his father doesn't want to talk much um, and you know, I think the boy is crying. His mother had told him to not look poorly. 
but rather to be perky so that it doesn't discourage his father even more, but that's already fallen apart. So at the end, the father tells his son not to even visit the jail again. He says, if there's any news, I'll send it through the visiting preacher man who comes through and visits the guys in the jail, and hopefully the family can get news. So then, sadly and slowly, the boy returns home, tells his mother about what happened, And then the very next morning, the boy hears a familiar whining sound at the front door. Sounder is badly wounded and a mere shadow of the great hunting dog that he was before, but he's alive. So this is a big turning point that Sounder is still there, although he'll never be the dog that he was. This seems to give the family a little bit of hope that even great loss can be survived. And then soon, the family hears that their father has been sentenced to hard labor. He'll be moving around the state, county by county, going to different work sites as part of this chain gang. So then the passing of months and seasons go by. The boy determines that he has to set out and find his father. He's not going to just sit at home and, and just not know where he is. His mother, however, is against it. She's afraid that it won't be safe and that the boy will get hurt. The boy, however, has made up his mind and he sets out. It ends up actually being journey after journey, not just one journey, because he's having no luck finding his father. And even years go by, but he's determined to keep up the search. So then every time he comes home, the crippled dog Sounder hobbles down the lane to welcome him back. And the story seems to be kind of stuck in this kind of semi-tragic mode of determination by the boy, but the inability to find his father. Yeah, that's right. And so there's this, it, it kind of breaks that pattern eventually. And mm. on, on one of these trips, um, there's a prison guard that smashes the boy's fingers against the fence and cuts them all open. It's kind of a big mess. And heading home, the boy stops at a school and he sees all the children released at the end of the day. And then the teacher who's an old man steps out of the school and he sees the boy and he's a kind man. And he invites the boy home to have his wounds tended to get a meal. The man listens to the boy's long story about how he's been looking for his father all this time. And when the boy gets home, he excitedly tells his mother about the teacher And how the teachers invited him not only to go to the school and learn how to read, but even to live with him. Mm. So in the winters, the boy goes to school. And in the summers, he returns home to take his father's place in the fields and earn money to uh, keep his family's rent. So then one hot late August day, his father actually comes home. He's, He's sort of dragging himself along the road, similar to how Sounder walks now due to his injuries. And it turns out he's been caught in a dynamite blast at the work camp and half his body sort of got crushed by the limestone that they were, that they were trying to mine out. The woman says, the Lord has brought you home. And then one evening, the man and the dog go out to the woods together one more time, just like in the old days when they were old hunting partners. But later, Sounder comes home alone and whines at the door. And eventually, they bury the boy's father in an unfenced lot behind the meeting house. And the preacher says, the Lord shepherds us. He will make us lie down in green fields. 
Yeah, so it actually, it ends in a hard place, right? And there's yeah. obviously a lot more detail in the story itself. We are just summarizing it here. But that's the outline of the story. It's a tragedy, really, kind of like the old ones from the Greeks and from Shakespeare. Yet it is infused with real hope. So what about the Bible's role here? How does that fit into all this? Um, really, we think it's the particular way the Bible is used in the telling of the story that we want to discuss today. We see throughout the story that the characters know the Bible well and just seamlessly weave the scriptures in. We didn't, we didn't refer to all those places because we're going to try to show you some of those right now in the book's own words. But it's really rather remarkable how uh, this illiterate family knows the scriptures and can bring in stories of the Bible right into their story whenever they want to. Um, rather than quoting a verse or stating a Bible principle, they simply recall elements from the Bible's stories. And then they relate those narratives to what's happening in their own story. Um, like I said, it will be helpful, I think, to actually look at samples from the book. So we're going to read some. Early on in the book, we hear that the woman sometimes told the children stories she had heard at the meeting house. The Lord do powerful things, she would say. The boy liked it when she told her stories. They took away the night loneliness. The boy dreamed of the stock land covered by the Lord's mighty flood. He wondered where the animals would go if the water rose over the foothills. Cabins on post would just float like boats, porch and all, he assured himself in a whisper. If they floated from the far ends of the land and all came together, that would be a town and he wouldn't be lonely anymore. And so we get launched into this idea of correlating the Bible stories with their own story. I think the first thing to notice here that these folks are not at home, you know, reading with the family Bible. They don't even own a Bible and they don't know how to read it if they did. So the woman has heard these stories at the meeting house. She remembers them and then she retells them. So when the Bible enters the story, it's all based on orality. It's on hearing, remembering and retelling, which is, I think, already a bit of a message for us in an age when people are not reading much. Um, there are other ways to access the Bible. And we've talked often on this program about the value of audio Bibles as actually an experience that's closer to what the original um, hearers of the Bible would have experienced with the scriptures. So that's the entry into Sounder and the Bible. Now, this idea of the meat, the meeting house uh, gets mm -hmm. repeated throughout. And I found myself as I was reading this, wishing I could go back to the meeting house mm -hmm. and find out what the meeting house was was like. Which, and uh, just to clarify, is the dialect for a meeting house? Yes, you know, it's right, like a chop house or anything, like else. a meat house, <laughs> meeting right. house. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is deteriorating into three white guys <laughs> yeah. trying to tell a a, a Negro. Um, sharecropper story but but it is um i mean it is somewhat telling and and by the way i i um I remembered when i was looking at this a book that i read a number of years ago um called the talking book by um alan dwight callahan um yale university press about the role of orality mm. and how uh people in the slave era became 
Um, they were illiterate in the sense that they couldn't read, but they were very literate, you know, in, in the scriptures. And so we see that, I mean, in this, in this story. So, you know, there, there's this moment that we talked about earlier where Sounder has been, you know, hit by the shotgun and he's laying on the road and everybody presumes him dead. And it says this, the boy thinks to himself, and I quote, maybe if his mother laid him on the porch and put some soft rags under him tonight, he might rise from the dead, like Lazarus did in the Meeting House story. So another reference to the uh, to the scripture soaked Meeting House, and you know what what we what we learn is that this Lazarus story is in the boy's memory bank, and and maybe more accurately, it's it's embedded deeply into his psyche, and he's he's able to immediately access it. So here's just another example. And again, I'm quoting from the book. Once his mother had told him about three people named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who were in jail. In a reference to his father, some mean governor or sheriff got mad and had them thrown right into the jail stove big as a furnace. But the Lord blew out the fire and cooled the big stove in a second. And when the jailkeeper opened the stove door, there stood Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego singing, cool water, cool water. The Lord's got green pastures and, and cool water. So, hmm. again, we're seeing these. this is a very fluid kind of back and forth uh, between this, this crisis that this family is in and, the, and, and crises that they're relating to. And scripture. Here's here's so one. yeah, just one other thing yeah. about that, Paul. It's fascinating to me how throughout the book, when these Bible stories are referenced, um, the boy in particular just blends details from his own story in with the details of the Bible story. Right? The Lord blew out the fire and cooled the big stove. It was a mean governor or sheriff, right? Instead of the king of Babylon, it's like the the there's not a literalistic like i have to restate the bible exactly the way the bible tells the story he's blending his experience with the bible story to make it like just clearer and easier to see how the bible stories fits the life experiences and story that he's living so it's this blending that i think is so fascinating and it happens throughout the story yeah and i i suppose that there are some schools of theology that would say this was a bad thing, right? They were, were losing the accuracy right. of the story. Right. Yeah. Um, so something to think about. Yeah. Um, here, here's just one more. Um, after the father um, has been taken away to the work camps, um, the boy again decides that he wants to search for him and his mother pleads with him not to go. And so he says this to his mother, and I quote, and I think it's one of the mo more powerful sections in, in all of the book. He says to his mother, why are you so feared for me to go? For now he was old enough to argue with his mother. In Bible stories, everybody's always going on a long journey. Abraham goes on a long journey. Jacob goes into a strange land where his uncle lives, and he don't know where he lives, but he finds him easy. Joseph goes on the longest journey of all. And has more troubles, but the Lord watches over him. And in Bible story journeys, ain't no journey hopeless. Everybody finds what they're supposed to find. Mm. 
Wow. And uh, I mean, this is this is amazing. I mean, the, the the boy's fluency, he doesn't just know one or two stories. He knows he knows all these stories and he I, identifies them all as traveling stories. Mm-hmm. And he's he's able to weave them together again, almost almost seamlessly. And, I, you know, I think one of the subliminal messages is. Uh, here's a sharecropper family that maybe is doing better by the Bible than some of us do today. Well, yeah, and we'll we'll get to this in a little bit. But I also admire how, um, you know, sometimes these stories can get cast as kind of one-dimensional stories, right? Abraham's story is just about faith and uh, Joseph's story is just about, uh, you know, God providing in times of trouble or something like that, you know? Yeah. But, but this boy sees them as multifaceted stories and they have this kind of common thread of a journey woven throughout mm-hmm. them. So they use, he uses those stories to quote unquote, apply them to his situation, um, maybe outside of the box of what they kind of get uh, shoved into these days if that makes sense yeah yeah and he and uh i mean you know in one of our devotional bibles you know for teens this might be a little section how to argue with your mother right, <laughs> right exactly right yeah. tell her about bible stories that yeah, are exactly. like backing you up yep yep <laughs> all right so just a few more examples here there's there's one scene in the midst of one of his many journeys looking for his father where the boy's listening outside on a Sunday afternoon and hears a preacher telling about the Lord loosening the chains of Peter when he'd been thrown into prison. So another example there, of course, throughout the book, the boy likes the David and the Joseph stories best of all. His mother always asks, why you want them told over and over? And, you know, if she if she felt good and if she started long enough before bedtime, he would hear about Joseph, the slave boy. Joseph in prison, Joseph the dreamer, and then finally, Joseph, of course, the big man in Egypt. And when she'd finished all about Joseph, she would say, ain't no earthly power can make a story end as pretty as Joseph's. Twas the Lord. And then finally, after the kind teacher had taught the boy how to read for himself, he would in turn read to his brother and sisters when he'd finished his day in the fields. So he read the Joseph story over and over and never never got tired of it. He would say to them, in all the books in the teacher's cabin, there's no story as good as Joseph's story. So again, like we've been saying, the boy just got his bearings from the stories that he'd been immersed in for so long. He'd embraced the Bible stories and those stories had in turn invited him in so that they became the stories of his life. And like you guys said, it's kind of this fluid merging of the two stories, like two rivers meeting, and you can't exactly tell uh, once they're combined what what came from one river and what came from the other. Mm, it's just kind of this right, right. melding of the two things. Um, yeah, it's a great image. Yeah. Hmm. I like that. Okay, so here's the thing. I think we should be thinking about what's happened in the, the story of Sounder and the the use of the Bible. What's actually happening here is that the two great stories are merging, just like your river analogy there, Alex. So the big narrative of the Bible, made up of individual stories, has come together with the hardship stories of the black sharecropper family 
In fact, they've all become part of one giant story. So this is more than merely learning morals from the Bible or even Bible application, as we so often refer to it. This is recapitulation. Recapitulation comes from Latin roots. So re, of course, we know means again, to do again or to, to something happens again. And then capitulum means head or main part. So to recapitulate is to produce a kind of a do-over. With regard to a narrative, it is repeating or playing the key parts of a story once more. This is what's happening in the Sounder story. Again and again, the boy finds his family's unfolding narrative to have been previewed in the stories of the Bible. They are simply playing them again. Blood stories, jail stories, furnace stories, resurrection stories, and all the great quests in the Bible. This is how the boy makes sense of everything that he and his family go through. They are reliving the narratives of the Bible. And this is what gives him hope. Because as his mother said, no earthly power can make a story in like Joseph's, twas the Lord. So extreme hardship and suffering, which are plenty in this story, are not the last word. The Lord gets the last word. And it is rescue, freedom, resurrection. People find what they're supposed to find. So patience is key. Believing is key. Ongoing hope in God's good work, overcoming great trouble is key. Yeah, that's good, Glenn. And, you know, I, as we think about people's experience reading the Bible, or as we're learning more and more through our research, um, more often than not, it's, it's probably a single Bible verse that's part of a devotional book. And that's kind of their main way of, of taking in scripture. And when that's the case too often, you know, I'm afraid that, you know, we have my life over here and the Bible's life is over there. And that's where we hear people saying, I, I read the Bible and it's just irrelevant. It doesn't, doesn't relate to me. This is different in the Sounder story. Um, in the Sounder story, we see that, um, their lives have been swallowed up by the Bible's big narrative, and now they're part of that narrative, and they are living and soaking in that narrative. So it, it's very interesting um, because we find this matching what we see in the scriptures themselves. So example, um, the Exodus story from Egypt, which, as we've said many times, this is the single great liberation event in Israel's history. And it becomes the pattern for all of the future rescues of Israel. So Yahweh hears the cry of his people. He comes down to free his people from oppression and to restore them. So here's an example you know, from the prophet Jeremiah talking about a different time after Egypt. He says, however, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt. But it will say, as surely as the Lord lives, who brought the Israelites up out of the land of the north and out of the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to the land I gave to their ancestors. So Jeremiah is saying to the nation, look, the rescue from Egypt wasn't a once and done story. And uh, 
when your slave is again, not in Egypt, but this time in, in Babylon, let the Egypt story wash over you. Mm. And then one, one more from Isaiah, uh, the Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea with a scorching wind. He will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that anybody can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So again, Isaiah wants the ancient story of the crossing of the Red Sea to be so deep in Israel's psyche that when they're being held captive in Assyria hundreds of years later, they remember. They remember that God is rescuing God, that it's in his nature, and that rivers and seas standing in the way of, of the rescue, that that's nothing. God specializes in, in things thought impossible. And so, again, this is all then leading ultimately you know, to our story that we live in today, this act, if you will, in the drama where Jesus has come that new things have been established, and ultimately, um, we are being um, restored toward the the new promised land, where the new king comes, and all of the old enemies, the two main enemies of sin and death, are defeated, uh, and God's people, you know, are living. We're we're living today under that new covenant. Yeah, that's good, and. Again, recapitulation is all about these repeating narrative patterns. You know, it's just this last Sunday, I believe my pastor was talking about how we kind of have this more uh, Greek view of time nowadays, where it's just kind of this linear line. And he said, Israel viewed time more as sort of a tapestry that could get folded over onto itself Mm -hmm. and a place where a needle poked up kind of in one part of the tapestry can poke up again in uh, in a part later in the tapestry. So it's kind of a more uh, three-dimensional view of time where these things pop up over and over again and get rehashed uh, over and over again. So, you know, this is kind of the structure, substructure at least, of of how the Bible works. So the rescue and the restoration of the Exodus becomes the pattern for how all of God's great salvation acts will look. The pride and arrogance of Babel becomes a pattern that's picked up by the other great empires in the Bible. So Babylon is like Babel, and then Rome is like Babylon, which is exactly actually how the Roman Empire is identified in the book of Revelation. So looking for these kinds of repeating patterns is, we think, a, a crucial habit for reading the Bible well. It even becomes the key way that Jesus himself reads the scriptures of Israel, and then we think intentionally reenacts them in his own life. We see it everywhere in, in the life of Jesus, but it's particularly clear in Matthew's gospel, where we see Jesus going down to Egypt as an infant and then coming up out of Egypt to return to Israel. He's tempted in the wilderness, just like Israel was. And then he launches his ministry by going down to the Jordan River, entering into it to be baptized by John which is representative of Israel getting a new chance to cross over the Jordan River and enter the land to be God's holy people. Of course, then he goes up on a mountain and delivers a new law or a new Torah. 
He's mockingly anointed as Israel's king. He gives his life as the sacrificial lamb at Passover and then is raised from the dead. in, of course, the greatest act of liberation in the entire story. Uh-huh. So, you know, all of this is recapitulation. It's, it's doing the story over again. It's poking that needle up through the tapestry to weave new threads, but in a newer and, and bigger and more definitive way. Wow. Yeah. So thank you, we say to Sounder and kind of how it models this fantastic way to enter the stories of the Bible and then back again into our own lives. The sharecropper boy recapitulated the freedom and restoration narratives of the Bible. Uh, That's what gave him hope to keep going on and to persevere. So we are called to do the same. We think it's a model for us as well. When hardship and defeat strike us, We know how to understand and endure them. We know what God does with stories like this. So we can follow that same model. And recapitulation is really what we are looking for. But I have to say, this kind of recapitulation will only have value for us if we have been immersed in the Bible in the first place. Right? The boy and his mother, they knew those stories and could call on them at will. So we have to know the Bible stories inside and out. Like the boy's mother and then the boy himself, we have to possess a depth of narrative knowledge to make this work. If there's no knowledge or merely superficial knowledge of the Bible, that's a deal breaker for seeing narrative recapitulation in our experience with God in the world. We have to be steady, faithful, and attentive readers of the Bible in order to see how God is repeating the patterns of his own redemptive story in our lives now and in the age to come just and it's worth saying i think in the sounder story right his sounder dies uh his father dies um so in a sense um the restoration that he's looking for and he references things like the lazarus story um some of it for them is also yet to come and that's the way i think that our own hope should be our own hope for things that aren't yet resolved or restored has to be based on those same stories And so we're looking for a yet to come kind of restoration, but it's also recapitulation. We're looking for the same kind of story that Jesus lived, for example. And so even when the ending doesn't come yet, we can still do recapitulation and it becomes the basis for our hope for the future. Yeah. You know, we could, we could wrap this right here, guys. Um, We could, we could say, okay, um, learn the skill of recapitulation and go in peace. Uh, (laughs) But I, you know, um, as I was looking over this material, uh, the thought came to me and and I wondered, was the ability uh, of this sharecropper family, especially both the mother and the older son to recall scripture in and kind of organically weave it into their lives? Were they able to do that? Because they didn't have, you know, a jumble of other stories in their heads. The main stories that they knew were the stories from from the meeting house. Right. Um, we don't live in that era, right? Uh-huh. We, um, we we're inundated with with other stories, and so I I want to kind of throw this out for us to talk about for a few minutes in a story saturated um, world. How do we build scripture recapitulation into our lives? Mm. Yeah, well, the thing I just said about, you know, 
we we flat out have to know those stories. And I, I think it's and it, it's actually something we want to talk about in our next episode about the example of the early church. Um, I think there has to be a bit of um, countercultural kind of an attitude among us that we have to say, look, other people don't read stories. Maybe they don't know the Bible stories in particular. But really, I think to have a credible and authentic Christian life, the scriptures have to be near the heart of it. I mean, it's about following God and, and worshiping Jesus through the power of the Spirit. But the scriptures are the place where we learn about all this. And so this dispensing with the scriptures idea and thinking we can get by as Bible-less Christians uh, is just completely unrealistic, I think. And there's a bit of that around. So I, I think it has to do with, are we committed to reading and knowing and rereading the stories of the Bible so that they really do get get in our bones? And as we've said before, um, it's hard to read a reference book. So if you want to read these stories and 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 keep rereading them, having a reader's format can make all the difference in in the experience itself and the quality of that experience. So all of this to say, I think Christians just have to make up their minds. They're going to be Bible people, people of the book, which is a name we used to have, which I don't know that we can credibly carry it today. Um, I think Bible reading actually is something that has to be rediscovered in a large part of the church. Yeah. I'll just add a, a quick note to that on just maybe the role of kind of the arts maybe in this. Mm -hmm. You know, I think about you open up Netflix and you've got immediate access to hundreds or thousands of stories, many of them just like visually stunning, written well, compelling. And for so many years, <laughs> Christian media is just, I mean, I'm sorry, it's been like pretty lame, I think, from from my generation's standpoint. Yeah. And, you know, even just recently, we've got things like our friends at the Streetlights Bible who are who are doing an audio Bible in kind of a new and creative way. I think that a series like The Chosen, which, you know, maybe in some circles is a little controversial because they they take some creative liberties, but they tell a compelling story about Jesus and the disciples in the early church. And I think people are just hungry for that. And I think there's an opportunity for Christians in the arts to tell and retell these stories in ways that capture people's imaginations and attention and, and their hearts just through creativity and mm. uh, just producing, producing something really well. So I think there's an opportunity here for Maybe, you know, maybe we don't compete with the Avengers necessarily in terms of <laughs> uh, production cost and quality and that sort of thing. But I think we can tell these stories well, because, you know, the, the Christian claim is that we are in possession of the best story of all time. So I think we, we should live into that in, and maybe flex our creative muscles a little bit better. Yeah, I think yeah. that's good. I think support, supporting artists is is a big part of this and supporting the work of the imagination. And think about the history of Christian art and how, again, because there was a deep knowledge of the Bible and its stories, it could be expressed in painting, in drama, right? The way the Bible just was naturally like used in poetry, stories. It was everywhere because it was assumed that people knew the Bible and knew those stories. And so just like Sounder, right, seamlessly weaves the Bible 
without it doesn't sit down and make us read the Joseph story, but it just weaves it into the story of the boy and his family. And um, for that to work, like, number one, the arts have to be supported. Um, and there has to be real, real Bible knowledge. You have to be familiarity with the narrative so that we can just see how it's working out in our own time. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the takeaways is that uh, this family naturally learns to bring um, this big epic story of the Bible, you know, into their lives. And I wonder even if in our consumption, you know, of other literature, whether it be in movie form or in books, I mean, there, there's there's no getting around it. There's some amazing literature out there. I mean, it's, you know, the grapes of wrath. Who wants to give up the grapes of wrath? Um, you know, Breaking Bad, if I could use that. You know, I mean, I <laughs> yeah. felt like yeah. that was just an amazing, an amazing story. But may, maybe in the same way that, um, you know, they brought the Bible story alongside their story. You know, we actually bring the Bible story alongside some of these stories as well. And it's just natural. We we, yeah, yeah. we think of it in those terms. Well, um, so anyhow, here we've been learning today from a sharecropper family out in the middle of nowhere who have never been, you know, properly trained to apply the Bible. They've they've never, you know, sat in a service where they were told you have to take the Bible from your head to your heart. Um, <laughs> they've never been discipled. Um, but what they have been is is immersed in the story. And sometimes I I wonder if our emphasis on application gets people all clutched up hmm. instead of allowing them to be swept up into uh, the power and the grandeur of God's story. So maybe one of our big takeaways, guys, is. And this is a very memorable one. I'm sure this is going to find its place in a meme somewhere. We need less application and more recapitulation. There you go. There you go. I like it. Great. Well, well, thank you guys. This has been a, a good discussion for me and hopefully for our listeners. And I think this is what we mean. We, we say this sometimes on the podcast about knowing the Bible in our bones, you know, so, so often these stories I think are taught in ways that, you know, the, the image that came to my mind is like an alley-oop in basketball, you know, where they <laughs> toss the ball up and the guy catches it and, and dunks it on its way down. You know, the story is the toss, but, but really it's there as a setup for the moral lesson or the personal <laughs> takeaway or the spiritual nugget of some sort, which is the dunk at the end that, uh, you know, people are kind of supposed to hang on to. And, and in that process, the story just sort of falls away or, you know, since I guess I'm full of illustrations today, maybe it's like one of those rockets at Cape Canaveral <laughs> where the story is kind of the booster and all that stuff. And then wow, it's high yeah. it kind of wow. falls away into the ocean <laughs> and the little nugget is what gets you to the moon or something. I don't know, but, but that's kind of how it feels to me is, is that the story is just kind of there in order to serve the, the moral lesson or the personal takeaway. Yeah. It's a prop. Yeah. A little bit, but, but, Sounder reminds us that the power is actually in the stories themselves and in familiarizing ourselves with them so that they're just kind of in us so that when things happen in our lives, it becomes second nature to remember people in the Bible who went through similar things and how God acted in the midst of those experiences. And maybe the best, best part of all of this is that we don't have to be Bible scholars to, to do all this. It's just a matter of familiarizing and and refamiliarizing ourselves with the narrative 
So, so hopefully this discussion has been helpful for our listeners. We definitely encourage you to go check out Sounder. It's a classic and we, we did our best to summarize it here, but it's of course best to, to go and read it for yourselves and see how the characters weave, weave scripture into their own stories. If you'd like to help more people find the Bible Reset podcast, please go ahead and leave a rating and a review on your podcast app, or you can share your favorite episodes on social media or email or whatever. You can find links to all episodes at instituteforbiblereading.org slash podcast. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you.